Before we begin this week's episode of AJC Passport, we have a very special announcement. The AJC Global Forum will feature an AJC Passport live show with can't-miss surprise guests. This event is only open to delegates at the AJC Global Forum, which takes place this June 2nd through 4th in Washington, D.C. Global Forum itself is a very special event. In today's highly charged political environment, AJC is uniquely positioned to address the challenges facing the American Jewish community and the Jewish people. Leading experts and policymakers will address developments in American and Israeli politics, the future of the transatlantic alliance, the tension between pluralism and polarization, and the global rise of anti-Semitism. Folks, you do not want to miss this. Through April 12th, there is a special reduced registration rate for Global Forum. And if it's your first time attending, you can take an extra 50% off. So click on over to AJC.org slash Passport Global Forum and register today for the AJC Global Forum to make sure you don't miss out on the AJC Passport live show. And now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. To most effectively fight hate, we need to understand it. That's why Brian Levin's work is so important. Brian is a world-renowned expert on extremism, and he is the director of California State University's Center for the Study of Extremism and Hate. In February, he served as an advisor for the AJC-convened Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, and while he was in New York, he sat down with AJC Passport to share some of his latest findings, including a number of surprising facts. Here is that conversation. Brian, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Sefi, so much for having me today. Now, we've featured experts on AJC Passport before talking about the data in Europe. We know that anti-Semitism is on the rise there. But what if we refocus our lens? When we zoom in on the U.S. and we zoom out from anti-Semitism to look at all hate, what do we find? Is, is hate on the rise at home? Yes, really interesting cutting-edge data that we have shows that in 30 of the largest cities, not the 30 largest, but 30 of the largest, which includes the top 10 and most of the top 20, uh, we found in 2018, and nobody else has it, we, didn't even, we haven't even released this yet, uh, that for those cities, for the first time this decade, hate crimes exceeded 2,000. Now, this represents wow. only 11.5% of the American population. And the two groups that had the biggest increases, at least in the limited number of groups we were looking at, were anti-white and anti-Semitic. Can you tell me more about what anti-white hate crime looks like? Someone threatens, attacks, intimidates, or damages property because the person was of the white race. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so, okay, so that covers white people and Jews. I'm, I'm not surprised. It, it, it's actually separate. In other words, it would be if, if someone attacks a white person because they're Jewish, then that'll be labeled an anti-Semitic crime. Sure, sure. I, I guess what I'm saying is, I, first of all, I'm, I'm flabbergasted to hear that anti-white hate crimes are, are on the rise just because I haven't heard anything about that, but I'm, I'm interested in it. Can you tell us more? Can you break out more, you know, specifically, tell us more about that. Tell us more about the anti-Semitic hate crimes, more about, and if I can just name a few other topics, you know, what about anti-Muslim hate crimes? What about anti-immigrant hate crimes? What about hate crimes against black people? What's the landscape there? Great, great question. Well, let's look at a couple of different data sets. Let's, let's look at the FBI. The FBI... And that tends to be the, the most authoritative and comprehensive list that people have to reference, right? Let, let the radio record <laughs> yes. reflect that, that, that Brian is, is making a eh, face. Well, no, you know, uh, the issue is, is that it's voluntary and... About six or seven states are responsible for over half the hate crime. And there are some states that report no hate crimes. Mississippi reported one in 2017. What a beautiful place to live. There there you go. (laughs) Alabama, I think, was nine. But interestingly, what we saw was increases, as I said, with respect to anti-Semitic. And interesting, just looking at the cities for 2018, for instance, over 2017, New York, was up 26% from 150 to 189. LA was up from 37 to 43. That's a 16% increase. So many of the cities uh, had increases, but some showed declines. Denver uh, had had a decline in anti-Semitic cases last year, as did Phoenix and San Jose. But here's the thing when you're looking at anti-Semitic hate crimes. New York, New York. About 26% of American Jews live in New York State, and about one in six live in New York City. And it seems like they're all in line at the same restaurant for lunch when I, when I want to go. <laughs> but, uh, but, but in any event, uh, New York showed an increase, and New York City anti-Semitic hate crimes have for years been the number one hate crime. So last year, out of about 361 hate crimes in New York City— and, and there's a little wiggle room. Sometimes they'll, they'll change their data up or down a little bit. But the latest data that we have for 2018 showed that there were 361 and 189 were anti-Semitic. So the majority of hate crimes in New York City uh, were, were anti-Semitic hate crimes last year. And again, the previous year, uh, anti-Semitic hate crimes were number one in New York. It's the only city in the United States, major city, where anti-Semitic hate crimes are the top hate crime. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, anti-Semitic hate crimes, since the FBI has been collecting data, and that's uh, one set that is used, has been around um, 11%, give or take, over the, the quarter century that we've seen. But interestingly, over the last several years, we've seen an increase in hate crime generally and also an anti-Semitic hate crime. So if you go back just, just a few years, they were numbering around the low 600s, according to the FBI. And this is reported hate crimes where police make a report to just under 1,000 in 2017. And that was an almost 40% increase. Now, remember, though, uh, we had a series of bomb threats uh, that were done by basically one assailant in Israel. Uh, and that was about 150. But even without that, we would have seen an increase in anti-Semitic hate crimes in 2017. 
Our research looked at 30 cities. Not all the cities broke broke it down uh, to the granularity of specific groups. But what we did is we looked at 10 cities that did. In those instances, anti-Semitic hate crimes rose just over 9% uh, in, in those cities. However, one big thing, Phoenix had a big decline for some reason, an, an apparently anomalous decline. Uh, and that really tamped down some of the increases mm. that we're, we're seeing in yeah. other groups. Interestingly enough, you asked me about anti-Muslim. Really interesting stuff on that. Um, anti-Muslim hate crimes before 9-11, you really didn't find more than about 30 reports or so in any given year. That year, 2001, we had over 480, wow. a huge increase. Wow. Follow me. For the, for the decade approximately, a little more, from 2002 till uh, 2014, anti-Muslim hate crimes were in a range of about 105 to 160. Then what we saw was a big increase in 2015. And we were, the, frankly, the first folks at the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at Cal State uh, to see this, this rise. We looked at jurisdictions from all over the country that there were more than half the country. And we saw this big increase in 2015 in anti-Muslim hate crime. And we had forecast, and it was in the New York Times, that there would be 260. When the FBI released their data later in the year, it was 257. And then then later on, they updated their archive to 258. Uh, It then went up to 307 the following year before declining in 2017 uh, to about 270 and change, which is still above that decade before. What I'm saying is starting around 2014 for the FBI data, we saw a consecutive set of annual increases overall for hate crime generally of about 31% for 15, 16, 17. Um, So even though anti-Muslim declined in 2017, that's the latest year that we have FBI data, it's still well above what we saw during that period from about 2002 to 2014. Uh, And and this has been the case uh, pretty much across the board. In 2017, we had 30 some odd groups that were covered. Just under 30 reported increases. One of the ones that didn't was anti-Muslim. But remember, they, they increased quite a bit. For the last few years, according to the FBI, Religion hate crimes have exceeded 20%, and we generally haven't seen that. So this is not not a good development. We've seen kind of a democratization of hate. Uh, So, for instance, the proportion of African Americans that are in uh, uh, victims of hate crimes or targets uh, has been in decline, uh, even when the numbers went up. So 96 Blacks in the United States accounted for 42% of the hate crimes. By 2017, it was down to 28%, but they're still the single largest group. Uh, Jews had declined. We, we were seeing in the FBI data for some years over 1,000. It then declined in the early to mid part of the decade, bottomed out in the 600s, low 600s, and now is almost about 1,000. And unfortunately, in 2018, what we found in the 30 major cities— Overall hate crime exceeded 2,000 for the first time. 
Uh, we found just under half, 14 of the cities we looked at hit decade highs, and 7 out of 10 cities, both in the top 10 and the 30 that we looked at, were up, including the four largest cities in the United States, New York, L.A., Chicago, and Houston. Uh, so interestingly enough, with regard to anti-Semitic, in 2018, which we have this police data, anti-Semitic hate crimes went up, but they didn't go up in all cities. Mm-hmm. So, Well, Brian, let me, let me ask yeah. you just specifically to some of the cities. So you mentioned um, a little while ago, you mentioned that there are some cities where um, hate crimes had not risen. I think you mentioned uh Phoenix, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and you mentioned Denver. Well, that, that was for anti-Semitic. So, so Phoenix was no rise in anti-Semitic. Denver was no rise at all in hate crimes. Um, Denver went down. Yeah. Denver went down overall. Seventy percent of the cities we looked at went up. So, I, I guess, I guess my question yeah. is, I'm, I'm curious. You know, um, there's noise in any data set, and so we shouldn't read into the fact that Denver went down, or, or are, are they doing something right in Denver that people are less angry, less hateful, less, less violent? You know, what, what can we learn from that? You know, that may be the case, but I'll tell you something. I've been doing this for over 30 years, and hate crime data uh, nationally is like weather nationally. <laughs> I left California. It was it was a lot warmer than it is in New York today. <laughs> so, so, for instance, you could say, well, the average temperature today is 42 degrees, but your mileage may vary by location. <laughs> so let me give you an example. We were just talking about 2015, big rise in anti-Muslim nationally. New York, it was flat that year. It actually declined by one, but then the increase was in the next year. So I try to describe hate crime in the United States as a centipede whose feet are moving at different speeds depending on which part of the body is going. So so sometimes, for instance, one place will presage an increase in other places. Like, for instance, California became a plurality Latino state in 2014. 2015, we had an increase in anti-Latino while the rest of the country went flat, but the rest of the country then increased the following year. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think is what we're looking at more. Mm -hmm. With respect to anti-Semitic, though, you know, New York can really drive things uh, because, as I said, when you have about 26 percent of Jews living in New York State and one in six American Jews living in New York, that's going to drive things. The other thing I would say is from from the uh, city data, remember as well. Jews in the major cities are about a, a bit over 4%. And AJC uh, does some great research on, on the demographics with that. So it's about double the proportion in the major cities than in the nation as a whole. Mm-hmm. But bottom line, um, over the last several years, starting nationally in 2014, we saw uh, a rise from a pretty much a quarter century bottom, which hit in 2014. The cities started turning uh, a year uh, uh, started turning in 2014 when the rest of the country was bottoming. So you can see that centipede thing. So the cities were moving forward sooner and more quickly than the rest of the country. But they're all they all seem to follow. Bottom line is, if this data that we're seeing is predictive, we will have a fourth consecutive increase nationally when the FBI comes out with their hate crime report right before Thanksgiving. But the data that we have show for the major American cities, at least uh, 30 of them, a fifth consecutive annual increase. But for the top 10, because of Phoenix, had such a huge decline. Their hate crimes were halved. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, (laughs) seven of the 10 largest cities were were going up. Bottom line is it was basically flat uh, for the top 10, down 
by less than 1%. So in that instance, we really want to look right. at the larger data right. set. And, and, and in that instance, we see, as I said, fifth consecutive year and the steepest increase in those cities since 2015. Right. Brian, let me, let me ask you a question about reporting because I'm an American Jew. You're an American Jew. We feel very comfortable in this country. Um, American Jews tend to have a good relationship with law enforcement. I would imagine that most of my Jewish friends, uh, were they to feel that they were the victims of a hate crime, their first thought or somewhere in their first three thoughts would be, I have to report this to to the NYPD, to whomever. Um, there are communities in this country that don't have a positive relationship with law enforcement, where law enforcement, in fact, might be a, a source of, of fear or anxiety um, within that community. Do you think that there's that, that skews the data at all? Is, is it possible that, for example, anti-black hate crimes or anti-Muslim hate crimes are actually underreported because people don't feel comfortable reporting them to law enforcement? That's a great question. And one of the things that we see when we break down by cities is local and regional demographics play a role. So let me give you an example. If you look at the states that have the highest percentage of African-Americans, like Mississippi, for instance, they only reported one hate crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're seeing that throughout many but not all states, for instance, in the South and many rural states. So what does that mean? That means there are large swaths of the country where African-Americans may very well be victimized if for no other reason that there are a greater percentage of the population. And in many of those states where African-Americans are the most heavily represented, uh, the hate crime data collection system is is broken. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about cause. I'm not an expert on hate writ large, but I do know about anti-Semitism. And I've seen many, um, particularly many on the left, basically say that anti-Semitism didn't exist until 2016 when Donald Trump created it, you know, ex nihilo, out of out of nowhere. Um, but that's just n- not true, right? Anti-Semitism has existed on the far right, on the far left, in certain radical segments of the Muslim community for forever, basically. So What's the deal with hate? How much of the blame do you lay at the doorstep of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and how much has always been there? Well, you know, that that's the question that is a no win question for someone like me. We run a nonpartisan center. Uh, by the way, as, as do we. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but but let, let me let me give you the data. Let, let me start because there's a lot of opinion out there. First of all, let's look at some of the surveys. Right. Jews are the most warmly regarded group. In the United States, about 90, 91%. Uh, more than Catholics, even. So, so that's something that's interesting. But what else have we seen? ABC Washington Post poll from 2017. 9% of Americans say Nazi views are acceptable. Hmm. What else did we see going into and just after Charlottesville? We saw another data point. There were more mega rallies by white nationalists, I mean rallies of 100 or more of these white nationalists in public, in the two and a half years leading just into and over Charlottesville than we saw probably in the previous 10 to 20. So we saw that. We also saw uh, hateful engagement on the internet and a rise, uh, a a really big increase with respect to anti-Semitic terms on the darker corners of the internet. So it's it's kind of a mixed picture. Some research has indicated that there might not be more anti-Semites, but the ones who are are more emboldened. Uh, And and I think that might be true when we're looking at that kind of information. But look, we had the worst massacre of American Jews in the history of this nation just last October. In Pittsburgh. 
Yes, in Pittsburgh. Um, and so the data shows some interesting things. Uh, the question was about the president. Listen to this. When the president launched his campaign as a candidate and made derisive terms about Latinos and Mexicans specifically, um, anti-Latino hate crime did not go up. Hmm. In fact, it went down. Hmm. However, when he spoke in Keene, New Hampshire, with just exaggerated uh, non-facts about how many refugees would be coming in, we saw, again, very small numbers to begin with, but we did see an increase after he spoke. In, in anti-refugee? Uh, Anti-Muslim. It was, it was about, uh-huh. it was about uh, Arabs and Muslims. Sure, sure. Okay. Um, from, from Syria. Uh, but then, in December of 2015, five days after the San Bernardino terror attack, the candidate made his initial Muslim ban proposal. And we saw hate crimes against Muslims spike above the spike that we saw from the terror attack. Wow. But from 2015, 16, and 17, we had a 31% increase. And if our data for 2018 on these 30 major cities is predictive, we'll have a fourth consecutive annual increase in hate crime. And I don't think we've had that since we've been collecting data starting back in about 1992. So thinking about other possible causes, you know, one thing that that we we heard a lot in in Europe, in particular in France, but also in Germany and and elsewhere, is that anti-Semitic hate tends to spike when there's something going on, a flare-up in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, Actually, I think that that's a little bit outdated. And I just spoke a few weeks ago on AJC Passport with the director of our Paris office, Anne-Sophie Sivan-Bakash, who pointed out that there is this huge flare-up in anti-Semitism in Paris related to the Yellow Vest protests. um, And there is nothing much in particular going on between Israelis and Palestinians right now. Um, But I'm curious in hearing from you, whether it's with regards to anti-Semitism or anti-Muslim sentiment or, you know, anything within the, the arena of hate, do you think that events on the global stage, do they affect the, the ebb and flow of bigotry in this country? Absolutely. And we have the data to make that case. Mm. And, and and I have to thank a whole bunch of colleagues like Jim Nolan at West Virginia University, who used to head up the FBI's data collection mm-hmm. effort. He's the chair of our advisory board. We've yep. got Dr. Grisham and Dr. Reitzel at Cal State, but we don't have enough time to go over everybody who's helped <laughs> me out. But I want you to know it's an ensemble that does this research. Well, thank it's, you to your team. But let me give you an example. The worst month for anti-Semitic hate crime in the United States over the last quarter century, at least through uh, about 2016-2017, October 2000, flare-up between Israelis and Palestinians. Indeed, four of the top five months for anti-Semitic hate crimes, according to FBI data, which we disaggregated over a quarter century. It's great. Four out of the five were at times when Israelis and Palestinians we're, we're in heated conflict in the Middle East. So it does appear to impact that. Hey, let's look at some other things. Uh, worst months for Arab and Muslims, September, October 2001. Hmm. African-Americans, listen to this. This is so interesting. Um, the worst month for African-Americans fell in the summer of 96, right before the Welfare Reform Act was passed, mm. during the course of an election year when there were horrible stereotypes yeah. about African-American welfare queens yeah, yeah, yeah. and excuse that. But that's the kind of 
horrible discourse yeah, that was going on. Yeah, welfare queens and crack babies. And, yep. Yeah. So, so that was the top month for uh, African-American hate crimes. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and scary. Uh, there was a high-profile incident recently. Jesse Smollett, the, uh, the actor who is alleged now to have fabricated the hate crime that was previously alleged to have been committed against him. It, it turns out, it seems, that he actually paid two people to fake this, perhaps to, to gain some fame or, or something. I don't, it wasn't for yoga lessons. Huh? <laughs> I don't pretend to understand, but as long as I have you here, I'm, I'm curious. How prominent are hate crime hoaxes? That's a great question, and boy, are you going to get emails. Let me just say, we try to track them. And in criminology, we talk of discoverable and discovered crimes. So we have found over the last three years less than 50 when in two of those three years, the FBI found over 13,000 hate crimes. We're estimating another 7,700 on top of that. So we're talking about 21,000 hate crimes estimated using basically FBI data and our estimate of what we think FBI data will be for 2018. Mm -hmm. We counted less than 50. Wow. Uh, And we counted eight in 2018. Most of those last year, I think maybe all of them, teenagers, college students. So from what we know, it's a very small number of discovered falsely reported hate crimes. But let me just tell you the definitions because it's all over the Internet and people are, are, are putting misinformation out or there's unclear information. Here's what we look at. An actual false report of a hate crime that is directed against the reporter or his immediate community, his workplace, church, school, campus. So the Israeli, for instance, that called in all the bomb threats, we wouldn't count that because to the people who are getting it, it was real and he wasn't part of any mm-hmm. of those particular uh, workplaces or houses of worship. Right, right, right. So very few. That being said... There are folks who will say, hey, Professor Levin, many of these hate crimes go unsolved. So, for instance, in in New York City, the the last year that we have state data on with respect to arrests, but we have have city data as well. But let let me just use 2016. Sure. Um, There are about 360 hate crimes in New York. A little less than half were solved. But here's, here's what I think. We have not seen in this media intensive market, right? along with a hate crime unit that has a couple dozen detectives, a lot of these quote-unquote hoaxes or or false reports. We looked at NYPD data last decade and found that they reclassified about 9.5% in any given year. That doesn't mean they were false reports or hoaxes. It might just not have risen to the level of a crime, or it might have been a crime, but not motivated by the group status of the target. So bottom line is... Here's what we know. 0.2 to 0.3% of hate crimes over the last three years have been confirmed as such. Mm-hmm. However, could there be... Could, confirmed as, as hoaxes. Or, or false reports, yes. Right, sure. Could there be more because many do not get solved? Absolutely. But we don't know what we don't know. Sure. Um, just before we close, one thing I'm not going to ask you to do is to kind of rank who has it 
the worst. Um, I think that often people want to make the case that, oh, you know, uh, things are, are, are the worst for Jews because anti-Semitism is the most this, or things are the worst for, for black people in this country because that, or for Muslims, et cetera, et cetera. And frankly, um, I think we at AJC are of the philosophy that it shouldn't be about uh, ranking victimhood or, or anything like that. Our focus should be on uniting targets so that we can present a united front and work in a concerted effort to try to find uh, ways for government and civil society to address these issues. Now, in, in light of that, you're in town, you're here with us now because you're going to speak to the Muslim Jewish Advisory Council, which is convened by AJC and the Islamic Society of North America. It's a group of Jewish community leaders and, and Muslim community leaders from all across the country um, who want to unite and work together and put aside what divides us and focus on being a united front against hate. Is that the best way to be tackling this problem? Oh, absolutely. And we're doing that across the country. California, multi-faith efforts here in New York and elsewhere, especially when we see that religion crimes have exceeded 20 percent. We haven't seen that. Yeah, I mean, well. we, might, we might have seen it like over the last 20, 25 years, like a, a time or so before. Yeah. But we're seeing consecutively. Year after year, religion crimes. And what I think we're seeing is a democratization of hate. And if we're going to see that, in other words, look, African-Americans are still the number one racial group being attacked. Jews, the number one religious group. But we're also seeing different offenders attacking different folks, for instance. Bottom line is, uh, yes, we have to work together. And when we go to state legislatures and there's a diverse group of people, it does make a difference. And also... We find with certain types of hate offenders, the targets are somewhat interchangeable depending on the offender. So it's really important that we work together. We've been fortunate to be doing that for some time. And uh, we've been looking at religious hate crimes as one of the priorities for years. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for keeping your watchful eye on, on all of this. We need your data to be able to do the work that we do effectively. And we so appreciate you coming on and joining us on AJC Passport. Thank you so much for having me, Sefi. It's time for our special Israeli election segment. Each week through the upcoming general elections on April 9th, we'll be bringing you an exclusive update on the race to determine who will be the next occupant of the prime minister's residence on Balfour Street in Jerusalem. This is the battle for Balfour. If you're looking for a basic primer on the Israeli elections, please check out the January 3rd episode of AJC Passport, featuring Lahav Harkov of the Jerusalem Post. Joining us this week is Allison Kaplan-Summer, a journalist at Haaretz and panelist on The Promised Podcast. Allison, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, one issue that has come up over the past week in the Israeli election cycle is the case of the living bots. We saw this fascinating, apparently well-researched article in the New York Times about hordes of uh, of bots, of these kind of Twitter accounts, you know, social media accounts without anyone behind them that were kind of automated, that were promoting Prime Minister Netanyahu's campaign. And then, at the very least, one or two of the bots turned out to be real people, and the Prime Minister appeared on stage with them. This is a really confusing tangle here. What, what was right about that reporting? What ultimately happened? And what does this mean for the campaign? Well, I'm no cyber expert. It's not really my field. But what I understand is 
kind of a twisted interpretation of what bots are, you know, intentionally um, kind of misinterpreted by the Netanyahu campaign. Um, as I understand it, in most cases, posts can originate originally from actual real people. And then comments, tweets that are considered favorable or, or favorably messaging the, uh, the, appropriate, uh, the appropriate side are then amplified by the use of bots, by the use of fake accounts that retweet the sentiments um, that are expressed. So I think that what happened is the Netanyahu campaign kind of very cleverly reached to the original posts, the original tweets that were up there and found that, yes, indeed, they were actually tweeted by real people, but their press conference didn't really address the issue of how much and whether those tweets were being amplified and, you know, retweeted and, and, and spread by uh, by you know, bots by not actual people, by fake accounts. Is there any sense as to whether or, or you know, what's the conventional wisdom maybe among the talking heads? Like, was Netanyahu well served by his press conference and now all thoughts of bots are kind of out of the electorate's mind? Or did he even kind of turn it around on his challengers? Or is this something that people are still kind of talking about, you know, oh, are we being manipulated in the same way that maybe Americans were, that maybe British folks were during Brexit? Well, I think that he definitely um, helped extinguish the issue as best he could by responding really immediately. And it was very effective having real people up there. Um, the amusing part is that the person that he put up there, his name was Captain George, um, a real guy named Giora. Um, you know, he turned out to be somewhat of a troll. Hmm. And uh, people, as soon as he showed up at that press conference, people were posting and there were articles uh, highlighting some of the like truly deeply offensive things that he had posted. And very shortly afterwards, his entire Twitter account had to be uh, eliminated because uh, people, uh, they didn't want this to be a continuing story, all of the sort of terrible racist things that came out. Um, I think that Israelis are less, worried or troubled about, you know, being manipulated electronically, uh, frankly, than Americans are, because here the numbers are so small. I mean, everybody knows everybody. So fake accounts can be sort of unmasked very easily. We're not talking about, you know, uh, such a, a massive population like the United States. Everybody knows everybody. So there's kind of a belief, at, uh, you know, I don't know how justified it is, that there's really a limited um, extent to which the Israeli public can be manipulated by electronic means. Um, it's really such a society where everybody knows everyone. Everyone's in each other's space. So obviously, um, the world of the internet is very powerful. I think that it's perceived as being less powerful here. Hmm. Well, there's another interesting quirk of the Israeli electorate that the Israel Democracy Institute called to light this week. In a recent poll, they found that among the general population, Prime Minister Netanyahu has a slim majority of folks preferring him for prime minister over Benny Gantz, his main challenger. 42.5% of Israelis prefer Netanyahu, 40% prefer Gantz. So just a slim margin. You know, I don't have the poll in front of me, but I would imagine it's certainly within the margin of error. However, among folks between the ages of 18 
to 24. They prefer Netanyahu over Gantz 65% to 17%. You know, the conventional wisdom really around the world is that, you know, the old geezers are the ones who vote Mm -hmm. conservative. And it's, you know, it's the young folks who are driving us toward the great progressive future. That doesn't seem to be the case in Israel, at least according to this one poll. What's your take on that? I think I would attribute it to several factors. One, you definitely can't deny that Israel is trending increasingly right-wing and that uh, younger people are among that group. If you think about population growth and, you know, sort of the, the number of children, frankly, and now, you know, reaching the age of 18, grown children that you have among some of the more right-leaning populations like the um, Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox groups. So that makes sense. Um, but I think primarily when you talk about name recognition and, you know, basically, I mean, think about somebody who's 18 years old, right? I mean, from when they were eight years old, they literally cannot remember another prime minister besides Benjamin Netanyahu. So the idea of someone else in that role can feel a little bit off-putting or, or strange to them. So you can, in a way, understand, you know, it's kind of name recognition on steroids, name recognition and association with the, uh, with the role for, for a lot of those people. And also for that age group, they have no actual memories of the whole time of Oslo when there was actual hope for a two-state solution when it seemed around the corner. You know, they don't have any memories of the great moments like Camp David and, um, you know, the time the peace treaty with Jordan. Those of us who are older, I include myself in the geezer category, um, (laughs) really, you know, in our formative years lived through events that really made us feel that it was truly possible to work something out with the other side. And if you look at uh, at the younger group, They've really never experienced that feeling in their conscious lifetime. All they've experienced is sort of um, uh, war, terror, building of fences, uh, et cetera. So that kind of seems like like a given to them. And I think, you know, it's hard for them to, uh, to picture an alternative. And I think they're very susceptible to the idea that it's not something that's actually possible. And so, um, you know, uh, leads them to, uh, to skew rightwards. Those are just some of the factors that I would pick up on as, uh, as being the reason that, um, that they're more right-wing. But uh, I'm not surprised so much by the poll. I guess I'm surprised by how large the gap is, but I'm not at all surprised by the fact that there's a gap. Um, there's one more issue I, I want to focus on that has recently surfaced uh, in this election, and I'm wondering to what extent it's on the voters' radar. Um, what is the submarine affair, and should we expect it to drag Netanyahu down into the depths, or uh, will he continue cruising <laughs> on the waves? To, to use a metaphor, right, <laughs> uh, dragging him down into the depths. Listen, um, you know, of the four cases against Netanyahu or that Netanyahu was investigated for, um, he was Three of them he uh, he's facing indictment for. This affair, the submarine affair, um, he uh, is not facing indictment for. If he was actually to face criminal charges on this count, I think it would be um, it would be a huge story. I mean, it, w- it would seriously affect it because the submarine case is the only case in which there are questions as to whether people allowed greed or self-interest to supersede the country's defense needs and supersede what's best for the country. Um, If you sort of climb up the chain of the submarine affair, which is really basically a situation in which a submarine, which is questionable whether it was necessary, um, was sold 
from a German company to Israel for a tremendous amount of money and also um, related to that, in which Israel gave a green light to that company also to sell that same sophisticated submarine to Egypt. Um, how does it relate to Netanyahu? The people who um, were connected to the submarine deal really from the upper echelons of the military and some of the people involved in the financing of the deal were very close to uh, Netanyahu, both in terms of being his confidants and being his family members. He had three cousins involved in it. Um, there is no evidence that Netanyahu himself knew what was going on, but um, as in the case, I can make the parallel as to uh, what was what's happening, you know, with uh, with Trump and Mueller, et cetera. There's just this feeling that if it was that high up the chain, that Netanyahu should have known or could have known um, what was going on. And there are some, you know, allegations that uh, that haven't actually been examined yet by the law enforcement uh, authorities. That uh, you know, there there's still some accusations up in the air and it hasn't been fully uh, fully investigated. But the other cases uh, that Netanyahu faces sanctions for really have to do with his political interests. And, um, you know, his success is manipulating the media, et cetera, you know, his, basically with the goal of, right, of him remaining prime minister and the goal of enriching himself in, I don't want to say innocent ways, but in ways that aren't actually harmful to the country. But if it was proven or if it was even close to being proven by police, by the prosecutors, by authorities, that uh, that the prime minister of the country put the defense interests of the country aside in order to profit from the sale of a submarine, that would be really serious. But we're not there. <laughs> now, Allison, before I let you go, I, I have to ask, this is our, our last episode prior to uh, next Tuesday's uh, <laughs> election. Um, do you, do you want to make any kind of projection? Um, I think that the overall projection, oh, wow, it's terrible. I could come out looking really stupid, right? <laughs> <laughs> All signs point to the high probability that Benjamin Netanyahu will end up in a situation in which he can continue being prime minister. I think that, you know, that that would be my strongest prediction. The real um, question mark is what kind of a coalition will he be able to build? And that will depend on the election results, Um, whether he would be able to have, I think, the kind of government he wants, which would be a far right wing government, which would allow him sort of um, to to pursue as uh, a much more comfortable margin of operation. It would be relatively slim, this right wing government, but he would be able to pull it off. He'd be a very happy guy. Um, And there is a possibility if you look at the polls, and the polls are very, very, very unreliable with the number of very small parties at play. So I don't think people should take the polls extremely seriously, even less seriously than they should have taken the polls right in 2016 in the United States. Hmm. Um, I definitely think it's in the realm of possibility, and that would be a very interesting result if Benjamin Netanyahu realizes that he could only remain prime minister if he goes into a government with some of the parties to his center left um, and has to bring uh, the blue and white party into his government. Um, The real question, I think, of these election results is going to be um, not whether or not Netanyahu will be prime minister, which is pretty much what the election is riding on, but what kind of a coalition will he end up forming? Because the composition of that coalition will certainly determine to a great extent the direction in which the country heads. 
Well, I think that was expertly hedged, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be hard to, to sound <laughs> to sound dumb based on, on on that. But we will certainly be watching this very closely in the days ahead and after the yeah. election, as whoever comes out on top works to form a coalition. Allison, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, "Good for the Jews," where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? The Webbies. Good for the Jews? Well, they could be. The Webbies have been called the Internet's highest honor, or as one pundit memorably put it, the Oscars are kind of like the Webbies of film. In other words, the Webbies are a big deal, and you have a chance to help the Jewish community win a Webby. AJC's Show Up for Shabbat campaign, which we created as an act of solidarity just after the 2018 shootings at the Tree of Life congregation in Pittsburgh, has been nominated for a Webby. From now through Thursday, April 18th, you can go to ajc.org slash WebbyVote, W-E-B-B-Y-V-O-T-E, or click the link right in our show notes and cast your vote for Show Up for Shabbat. Show Up for Shabbat was our way of turning tragedy into solidarity, of giving people an outlet to grieve and also to come together across all faiths and nationalities to stand together and to show up for Shabbat. Now, click the link in the show notes, cast your vote for Show Up for Shabbat, and make sure that the Webbies are good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.